laid back and it did not involve us. In our hearts, the deepest parts of who we are, by ourselves, if we're left to ourselves, we just kind of drift, just kind of go about our lives, a bit aimless. Most of us aren't naturally inclined to dwell on spiritual things for long in everyday life, let alone the business of having like the rest of our lives aligned with our spiritual thoughts and lives and stuff. Those things aren't always, don't always come out. If left to our own devices, we just kind of accept how things are. And when we do that, good things can't flourish. Nothing really great came out of a status quo situation. Nothing amazing came from people just kind of drifting towards something. Good things, in order to flourish, need to move somewhere. It has to, has to, has to go somewhere. It has to be something. We need someone to overcome our own spiritual status quo in our hearts. Basically, we need someone to rebel against ourselves and the darkness in this world, to be our rebel leader that we can follow. And this is exactly what Jesus is. And he's kind of leading his, like, his rebellion through these words that we'll get to read. He's leading the way for us. He breaks us out of that status quo and leads us into the good life. Now, I don't know where you are with Jesus, but for all who follow in his ways, we get to experience life in a different way. The Bible has this word blessed, which sounds very churchy, sounds very spiritual, blessed. Even like adding that extra syllable, it's not blessed. You can say blessed, and then all of a sudden it's like really spiritual. Um, it's like a way of, it's like, deep, it's like a, a, a happiness and a but happy is often a term we use for just like an emotional state. It's like a deep happiness that circumstances can't mess up. Like there's something within you that is really good, and all of this can be going really bad, but there's still something within you that is really good. That's what the blessed life looks like, or dare I say blessed. And it's open for all. Jesus is talking to everybody here. So let's start here in verse 7, uh, picking up where we left off from last week, about the merciful. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So there's this reciprocity here. Someone who is merciful will be shown mercy. The one who will be experiencing mercy are the ones who will be giving it out. It might remind you of what Jesus will say later in chapter 7, of like, do to others what you want them to do to you. It's kind of the golden rule kind of thing. Mercy is connected with something like forgiveness, but it's a bit more, bit more broad than that. Mercy might be like the big umbrella that forgiveness can fit underneath. It's a general posture towards other people. Uh, it's not just uh, doing one thing or doing a couple things. It's just a way of being towards others. Being merciful towards others is a way of being. And it's actually, when you think about it, it's really an aspect of generosity. Because you're being generous in spirit towards others that maybe they deserve it, maybe they don't. And if you are filled by God's generosity, you will have plenty of room to always be showing mercy to others. If we're filled with our own, that, that runs out, and maybe for some of us it runs out really quick. The opposite of being merciful is to be bitter. Is to have a critical spirit. You can't be merciful if you're critical. That's the two are opposites. You can't be merciful if, if you're if if you're uh, bitter. It just it doesn't work. Now I'm sure some of you are withholding from other people because you're human. It's kind of how we are. But maybe some of us are withholding forgiveness, and maybe it's because something did something that like legitimately horrible. Mercy is not giving someone what you think they deserve. That's a really difficult thing. It's more difficult the more personal it is and the more, the more horrible things someone did to you. It doesn't mean you have to like re-put that relationship back to where it was, but it, living in forgiveness is kind of a constant walking with God thing. Or it might just be something as similar as like, oh, I'll just kind of give them a cold shoulder or maybe I'll blank them. I just won't even really like say hello. And it's not like you're – in not saying hello, that can be like a socially acceptable way of not kind of extending that mercy. You know what I mean? It, it can be very, very small on that kind of level. And when we think that way, or when we act that way, we create this logic in our brains to make it legitimate for us. 
they say, ah, oh, because they were like that to me, that means I don't really need to say hello to them. But you see, and it's like, that's not really being merciful. That's just kind of doing to them what you feel like you want them to feel the same way you felt, so you're going to not do that to them. Now, Jesus wants to recognize our foolishness in them. And, and not only recognize that, he wants to change our foolishness in our hearts. It's not honorable to seek revenge, despite what Hollywood blockbusters might sell. It's really fun to see on the screen, really horrible kind of way of life. Gladiator, a hey, great film. He's killing people. You know, Die Hard, whatever. Name your favorite action movie. Revenge is probably going to be a part of it. Vengeance is going to be a part of it. And that's maybe cool to see explosions on the screen. But for our souls, it's horrible. It kills us. God is merciful to those who show mercy. You can't sing of experiencing God's mercy or even asking for it as we did during confession if you're withholding it from others. And if you know just a little bit of God's mercy to you, just a little bit of what that means for God to be merciful to you, then you know how maybe a little bit more how you ought to act towards others. You have more than enough mercy to share towards others. So that's being merciful. Uh, the second thing is uh, that uh, Jesus brings up is a pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Uh, the pure in heart isn't just a um, being good thing. It's to be singularly devoted, to have like uh, purity. If you think of, of impurity, that's when you add things that ought not to be there. Impure water has like, I don't know, stuff you don't want to drink in it. But pure water is like pure hydrogen and oxygen and probably other good minerals too that I don't know about. Um, but the uh, a purity is, 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 is a singular devotion in the deepest part of who we are because it's pure in heart. Remember, your heart is the deepest part of who you are. So for us to be pure in heart means to be kind of, have this one thing that we, that we chase after, this one thing that we focus on. So to be pure in heart means that your true self, your deepest part of you, is to one thing, to one thing. The status quo, our default mode, is to run around after many things, to try and juggle it all, to have a heart full of spinning plates, than to have an impure heart. And we might legitimize that. We might say, oh, well, we were busy and all sorts of stuff, and we have all these other kind of things we need to be involved in. You can be involved in loads of things and still be pure in heart. So where it is the kind of foundation of where does it come from? The pure in heart will have a longing to live the life that God requires. You won't be perfect. You will make mistakes. You won't follow through. But deep down, there is a desire, a motivation towards one thing. You might be up and down day to day, but when you zoom out, what you see ultimately is like a trajectory towards something, going towards one place. And it might look like this, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you look out like 2021, 2022, it's like just some kind of level of a trajectory towards something. If, you're pur if we're pure in, heart, in our hearts, there will be growth. Now, it says for those who are pure in heart, they get to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That means not just to like, see him in person like he shows up one day he's like hey i'm here you're pure in heart great see you later no it's it, there's a level of getting to know him in a way that is more personal than just kind of knowing about him we can read stuff about him we can get wikipedia knowledge we can read theology books but for us to live our lives as pure in heart means we get to see and know him in a way that uh, we wouldn't otherwise because if our hearts are full of spinning plates we don't have enough time to even give him that attention to even see him we're all looking for God, whether it's the bottom of a bottle or the function room of a pub on a Sunday, but to find him more than that, to see him, that's for the pure in heart. And don't expect to see him easily if your heart is full of spinning plates. And maybe a good way to contrast how we fake our way through being pure in heart is, um, I'll, I'll explain this in a moment, but to be pure in heart versus to be pure in presentation. So pure in heart and pure in presentation are two different things. 
Appearing presentation is making the outside look really shiny and clean. Like, you look good. A job can make you, like, pure in presentation. But I, if you're focused on being pure and presenting yourself and showing your outer self to be great, means you're going to say certain words and not say certain words because that's going to signal to others who you are. That can be very religious. That can be very kind of, like, uh, political. That can be all sorts of things. We all do that in all sorts of different areas. I'm a good parent because I say these things. Or I'm a good whatever because I say these things. Or I don't say these things. A certain way of talking, words we use and don't use, regardless of whether you call it religion or not, that's a, a, an attempt to be pure in our outward selves and, the, and how we present ourselves. It's not only letting everyone else know you're okay and let everyone else kind of know that you're good, but it was, there's a, a, an in, in inherent missing of who we really are and where we really are. We try and, through that, convince ourselves that we're good. But the outside never made an inside clean. That's not how, that's not how our souls work. That's not how Jesus talks about Christianity. We might think if we work hard, we do our bit, the inside should be fine. And with God, if I do all the outside stuff, show up to the things, go to the serving team trainings, be missional community leader, all sorts of stuff like that, then I'll be fine too. But that's just not what God's talking about. It's not that we ought to not do those things. Where does it come from first? Because no amount of outside work can fix the mess of what's going on inside. It just can't. It's like someone who works out all the time. They're in the gym, but their diet is horrible. It's like fast food, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. Maybe the outside looks good. I don't know. Maybe not, depending on how horrible the diet is. But inside, their arteries are clogged. Their actual health is really bad. They might work really hard, but their actual health is really bad. Jesus tells us to start with the inside. To be at your most kind of fundamental level, your heart, singly focus on him. That doesn't mean you don't do other things. That doesn't mean you don't care about other things, but it means at the start, behind it all, is a single focus on him. What happens then is the inside always works its way out to the outside, always. Just like if you were to, uh, if you had a drink today and you're filling the uh, outside of the, or the, filling the inside of your cup with something warm, the outside will get warm. The reason why the temperature on the outside is warm is because the inside is hot. That's how it works, same thing with our souls. Our inner life is an important resource to guard and to use well. So I just, I wonder, and we're not going to have loads of time to talk about how this could specifically apply to our lives, but I wonder what a life lived more as the pure in heart would look like for us, for you. Where might other distractions or other motivations be coming from? Like, who are you when nobody's looking kind of stuff, right? What, what are you standing for? Our committed inward life will reveal to us the God who is already there. It's not that external ma actions like don't matter. Of course they do. But it's the primary importance of where things come from first. You can be very religious, have a horrible inner life. You can work out loads and be unhealthy. You can also be very secular, and maybe you've only just begun a positive inner life with Jesus because it hasn't yet worked its way out yet. And remember what Jesus says about this. The benefit to our deepest love and motivation uh, of him being that deepest love and motivation is to know him even as he knows us, that we get to see him. The next thing Jesus talks about are the peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To be a peacemaker <clears throat> is beyond like a peaceful disposition. It's not just you're just peaceful. Of course, that's a good thing to be at peace. But this is something active. It's peacemaking. It's, like this, it's a singular word, actually, in the Greek. Um, this prevailing rule, uh, uh, the prevailing rule of Jesus' day and ours is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Someone punches you, you punch them right back. You know, give them what they deserve kind of stuff. And that's part of Old Testament law. 
Like, if that person wrongs me, I get to wrong them the same amount. And maybe if I'm lucky, they might break with me and I can't get into the church. Like, I'll be happy when it happens. It might feel easy to be a peacemaker. You're like, oh, I'm pretty good at doing that. And then you get wronged. Someone does something against you. You're like, I am not good at doing that. Because when we're wronged, that's when we want, you know, justice to prevail. This is how it is for everyone who's been wronged. We want others to feel what we feel. And forgiveness, making peace, is refusing to slip into that. Being a peacemaker assumes and recognizes that injustice is going to be a part of our world. It's going to be there. It assumes there will be friction between people. It's going to happen. There are insufficient structures of society. There's a lack in our own hearts. And there's a powerful, dark, spiritual evil that works against us as well. There is spiritual reality to all of those things. But following in the way that Jesus teaches us means we can go about those realities in a healthy way, in a way that will actually lead us not to more pain, but to the good life. And it also means we have a responsibility here. Now, you might say, well, with that person, maybe I don't have the responsibility because I know them really well. I'm, I'm friends with them. Or you might say, well, I don't really have that responsibility because I don't know them well. I'm not friends with them. I've heard them both in, like, in the same situation. That happens to all of us. We will all kind of find ways to not do this because it's cringy, it's awkward, it's difficult. And if things go wrong, you, you could fear maybe this relationship will, will be horrible. Now I have to see this person. They hate me now. All the things that our, our brain goes through. Everyone deals with that. I don't know anybody who hasn't thought that. And what might be helpful to think of maybe is three categories of, of how we kind of live our lives. Now, someone once got really angry at me for these categories, but I still believe they're helpful and biblical. Um, peace breakers, peace fakers, and peacemakers. Those first two are not great. So uh, I'll pretend like they are. Uh, a peace breaker is someone who creates the conflict. You know these people in your life because they make themselves known. They're the bull in the china shop kind of people. They love conflict. They chase it down. Maybe they even create it. They just say, oh, I'm not in it for the drama, and yet drama seems to follow them all over the place, and they love it. They kind of like relish it. They love it. But all of us, whether we like conflict or not, all of us actually are guilty of breaking peace. We're all in that situation. We're all in that camp. We sin against others. We sin against God. So we're all peace breakers. And actually, we're all peace fakers as well. It's not like, which one are you? It's, this, is, this is all of us. A peace faker has the look of peace, but it's not really peaceful. It's just kind of like trying to make sure the water stays still. Don't rock the boat kind of thing. It's saying, everything is fine. And we're fine really means, no, it's not. You know, those extra syllables, the extra kind of up and down. It's an empty pretending. You get offended about something. You tell everyone. You never talk to the original person about it. You actually have an issue with someone but don't want to deal with it. And here's the thing. It always comes out. It will always come out. And if you aren't in control of how it comes out, it will come out sideways. And it's not good. It's never good. Often when we moan to others, oh, this person, this, this person, that. A community of peace fakers is not only empty, it's toxic. Because there are all these conflicts floating around. No one's actually dealing with them. It's not honest. And even though the church is known for being really good at peace faking, we're really good at being religious and being nice to people. It's anti-Christian. It's anti-Jesus. It's like the couple that never fights, and they're likely at least one person is peace faking. If that faking has gone on for a long time, that means maybe someone's kind of given up. Real peace requires us to actively move through conflict lovingly. It doesn't mean we have to like throw plates at each other, all that kind of stuff, but conflict is going to come up. And this is what peacemaking is all about. So peacemakers are devoted to other people being, or, or themselves, being reconciled to each other. 
to bring together what is apart. Can we think maybe for a moment where you might need to make peace? It could be someone in this room, someone in your family, someone you work with, a neighbor, maybe all those people. Their good relationships are always in a constant state of making peace. Now, so that might be where we are individually. Let's zoom out a little bit and think about the church in general. Where do we, as part of the church, like the global church, where do we need to make peace? Where do we need to make peace here? You know, for some people, the church is nothing more than a symbol of oppression and regression. Whether fairly or unfairly, we as a church have a responsibility to make peace because Jesus is talking to us. This is our job. People who come from LGBTQ plus, ground, plus backgrounds, the church has not done well by them. They're not known for being welcomed into these kind of communities. What could it look like for us to actively be peacemakers instead of just like assume a status quo of like, ah, oh, if they come in, that's cool. If not, well, I guess that's on them. No, we have to actively be making peace. Redeemer has people from different class backgrounds, and we live in a culture where class differences are a huge deal. But I'm classless because I'm American, so it works out. I have no class. In Charlton, though, there is a big class difference, a massive class, and often for people who have lived here for decades or even generations and people who have, like, recently moved in, people, they might be in the same pub, but they will never speak to each other. People are apart. What would it be like for our church to be peacemakers? We might have some opportunities here. If you follow Jesus, you are God's child. That means you reflect your parents. Like, genetically, our son is going to look like us. Us, if we're God's children, um, spiritually, we're going to look like God. We ought to reflect him. God is the ultimate peacemaker. We couldn't have been more farther apart from him. And Jesus made peace through his cross. He took it all. He didn't say, okay, you guys figure it out. If you come to me, that's cool. If not, well, I guess it's on you. No, he actively found us. Because of that, when we aren't filled with ourselves, when we're filled with him, we don't slide down to the status quo of breaking or taking, but we can actually move forward in, in peacemaking and actually um, get, getting other people in on the grace that we get to enjoy. Now, this is not easy. None of, this is really, really difficult, and it's scary, and it's fearful, and all those things, but that's why we have God himself, the Holy Spirit, with us. I mean, imagine, just imagine if people were more like this. Just in general, our society would be pretty different. If the church, if we were more like this, like churches throughout Manchester, probably people would view Christianity a little bit differently. If you have any questions on this or even like have situations or whatever, you, well, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Uh, or you could even put it on redeemermcr.com slash ask, and we can talk about it after the service. Because that's, that's a big topic. It's a difficult one, too. But let's move on to what Jesus says next. He said, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And now Jesus talks about the persecuted. If peacemaking is actively going out of your way for others, persecuted is when people go out of their way to oppose us or even harm or hurt us. And maybe the biggest takeaway for us in the Western, supposedly enlightened kind of world is there will be opposition. There is going to be persecution. Being engaged with others despite that is the good life, the holy life. There is no room for kind of like hermit spirituality of like, uh, if you're really spiritual, you'll go into like, the desert and never talk to anybody or you'll like become a monk and only talk to god like that's not really christianity in the way in a healthy way but you don't need to kind of to go into a, a wilderness to separate yourself from people you can just hang out with people who are just like you and you'll never have people who oppose you but that's not how we're called to live either look sometimes our citizenship in god's kingdom 
isn't aligned with our citizenship in this world. To live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven is to be set over against the rest of society, and the rest of society, surprise, surprise, doesn't share our, all, our values all the time. This is okay, and this is normal, and this is what was going on in Jesus' time. This is what's going on in our time. It will always kind of be going on until the new heavens and earth. Those of us who grew up in westernized, Christianized cultures don't seem to get that this is a thing. Our citizenship in God's kingdom isn't always aligned with our citizenship in this world. And that's why, like, the culture war aspect of Christianity is so boring to me, and I detest it so much of, like, well, we're like this, they're horrible, they're like this, we need to find ways to, like, get back at them, and we need to fight back. And I just, like, I have no interest at all in that kind of Christianity. I just don't think Jesus tells us to act this way. Jesus here is telling us to embrace our weakness, to know you will be persecuted, and to see it as the disciples in Acts did as an honor. Now, let's not get all bent out of shape when, surprise, surprise, secular culture doesn't agree with us. We shouldn't really be surprised. I'm not saying it's easy. We, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when people say they don't like us as a church or as Christians. When we get all up in a huff, what it does is it exposes how internally fragile we really are. Because if how we're doing rests on how this person says we're doing, what does that tell you about your spiritual life? It's kind of, it's kind of empty. Only someone whose foundation is firmly in God, in this good life that Jesus is talking about, will be able to weather those kind of storms that are going to come. And they will come. Of course there's going to be conflict when light comes into contact with darkness. So how are we going to go about it? We're going to flap around, we're going to wring our hands, we're going to hang our heads, or are we going to puff our chests out? We have the opportunity to be peacemakers. And this verse comes right after the previous one, I think, for a reason. Now, especially in context when persecution is on another level, this is really difficult. Because Jesus knows this, and he knows it's going to be difficult. He expands more. He talks more here on verse, in verses 11 and 12. And what he does is actually, he switches it from the, the kind of generic blessed are those people, and he switches it to a, uh, a, is it a plural you. Blessed are you when people say all things about you. So he's talking about the discipleship community, the, the Christian community. When they say all kinds of evil against you because of me, they're not saying it because of us. Certainly they're saying it because of Jesus. The disciple community, this alternate society, these are words for us as a church together. We're not the first. We certainly won't be the last to be persecuted. In fact, the very tradition of being a Christian, of following in the way of Jesus, is a, a tradition that includes persecution from the Old Testament. The prophets were just like that. So if you are a Christian, you're stepping into a tradition of many, many good things, of which is included persecution by people who don't always agree with us. In fact, to not be persecuted, that's the peculiar part. But let's not get too high and holy. Persecution for what reason? Jesus says persecution because of righteousness or because of the things that what people will be saying because of him, because of Jesus. If you get persecuted because he said something that was technically true but not really loving i'm sorry that's not on jesus that's on you if you get persecuted because even though you're claiming christianity what you're saying is actually not really christian at all you probably aren't being persecuted because of jesus there's a difference between being persecuted because of jesus and the natural consequences of just being an idiot and we've all been there if you've been around the church for a bit you've seen the gospel grenades others have thrown them Maybe you have to be in a conversation and just be the weird Christian who says the out of place weird Christian thing because you feel like maybe I need to have to say this thing that actually doesn't really apply at all. And then you leave and you let that kind of grenade do its thing and you actually don't follow up. That's not very helpful. 
for the um the great kind of uh Jesus jukes that can go on. Um, I did it, it's I did a great Google search of like uh, list of Jesus jukes in the church, and it was like these great kind of self righteous ways of presenting it uh, of. Uh, presenting how how we're doing in our lives. Jesus Juke is this idea that someone is talking about something like worry, for example. Like, oh yeah, I really worry about this. I'm I'm worried about whatever the situation is. Like, worry? Oh, I used to do that before I knew Jesus. You just need to have more faith. You just need to, you just you just need to stop worrying and trust God more, and then you'll be fine. And then, you know, that's kind of like it's like if you're really spiritual, you won't have that problem. And it, it just kind of like denies someone's pain all across the world. So whether it's a gospel grenade whether the Jesus juke, we all have these kind of simple, trite ways of negating others' difficulty or pain. And if you get persecuted for that, you probably deserve it. You probably deserve it. Now, I know we aren't in fear for our lives here in England in 2023, but as a pastor of a church, I get my own kind of hate mail. You guys may not get it as much as someone like me because things are more connected to me. People have told me I'm homophobic. People have told me I'm Islamophobic. People have told me that I should die. People have told me I should quit, that we should uh, be negated from existence, all sorts of things, just and people who don't know me at all, just because I'm part of a church. And people have said all sorts of things about Redeemer, even though they don't know things about the church. And they're going to say many things about us that just aren't true. Trying to destroy someone's reputation or trying to get at them through that kind of way is a form of persecution. I mean, it's not like I'm not fearing for my life or anything like that. But we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. And it actually does come. You just may not know about it all the time. Our difficulties with following Jesus in our context will often lead to inconvenience, will often lead to difficulties and some relationships. I'm not sure that really qualifies as like the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about, but it is persecution nonetheless. And I wonder, because we don't really experience persecution for Jesus' sake very much, if at all, I wonder if this is an area where really, like, as Christians, we're really quite weak. Because we haven't really used those muscles very much. If we can't handle inconvenience, how will we handle persecution? Now, our struggles are real and difficult, and I don't want to erase them completely, but I do want us to see them kind of with the right perspective of where they kind of align with things. Even in the real but lesser ways that we'll be persecuted, I'm not sure how many of us know this verse from experience, because I think we're too afraid to even approach it. We fear being persecuted, so we take five steps back from whatever might possibly cause conflict we, we don't say anything, or if we do say something, we qualify it completely to death. We're so afraid to rock the boat that we continue as peacemakers, not really being ourselves. Now, there will be times, I don't think very many, but there will be times when following Jesus will lead to others being horrible towards you, being nasty towards you, because you're trying to love them and care for them. And I know, you, I know stories of how that's happened for some of you. People might even, like, they just act differently around you. They, they ghost you. They don't return your call or your text. They might, even in my case, be quite vocal against you. But, you know, there is a blessing here from God for people who experience that. To those who have been persecuted, we get to go to God in a different way that we wouldn't have had otherwise. He gets to be someone for you in a unique way. This blessing here is not because of pain. It's not like we chase after being persecuted. But it's because of what comes after that. The source of our celebration our happiness as Jesus' disciples comes when we recognize the good that is promised to us and how that far outweighs whatever kind of bad can come. Our future good outweighs whatever difficulty we have in the present. Persecution from others can actually really be the fertile ground to cultivate that hope because we realize this is actually not our home. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And the thing to best remind us of that is when this world kind of is against us. 
Now, because we get let down and we get disappointed in this world, we yearn and we groan for God all the more in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. We have a friend who has an Acts 29 church in Turkey that uh, while at an Acts 29 conference, someone bombed their church building like while he was there. And he's, on, he's getting texts, he's getting images, he's getting phone calls. Nobody was hurt, but he was obviously very concerned. But even as our friend was navigating this, there was a knowledge he had from experiencing persecution that there was, he, ha- he had a groundedness that came because it wasn't the first time they were persecuted. It was the first time they were bombed. But he had a hope that was beyond being bombed. I want a hope that's beyond being bombed. I'm not sure if I have that. I've not really experienced that. I'm not sure if God's really put me in enough situations for me to work out that weakness yet. And he still had, our friend still had a, call, a love to continue to call people to follow Jesus in a place where people didn't want him there. That's not too far removed from us. Now, the, the situation, the way people will, will react to us will be different than that. Thank God for that. But not everybody wants us to be here. And that's, we should expect that. This is okay. Those are the people we're called to love. I think we miss out on really on that part of our soul's formation. We don't get persecuted enough. I'm happy we don't get persecuted enough. Not that we should run towards it, but when we do get in those situations, don't forget to think about how this will be an opportunity for you to know the kingdom of heaven in a new way. The status quo tells us to find our happiness now because who knows what the future will bring? Christianity is the opposite. We know what the future will bring. We might get some happiness now, and that's great, but thank God for it. But persecution or conflict does not make sense in a happiness now kind of world. If it's everything now, then we only search out the good things and we leave out all the bad things. And that really holds our souls back. But in all of this, in all of what we've talked about, Jesus, when you think about it, Jesus is the one who has all the mercy. He's the one who is completely pure in heart. He is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who endured far worse persecution than any human ever will. So instead of this being a list of how to come to him, this is how we are set to live. This is how we get to live after he comes to us. This isn't like, if you do all this, then you get to be in God's kingdom. No, these are people who are already in God's kingdom, and this is how we're supposed to act. It's a very different thing. One's religion, one's Christianity. One's a set of rules, one's an actual relationship. And this is what's symbolized ultimately in the Lord's Supper, enjoying the good life. It's a symbol of all that we get from God, as well as a symbol of our dependence on him. Then who here has been merciful always? Who here has always been pure in heart? Who here has never been anything but a peacemaker? Who here has lived well and endured well through persecution? None of us, none of us, we're all in the boat of no. You see how high the bar is for God's kingdom? It's impossibly high. There's no way we can expect to get there ourselves. How high the bar is to actually get the good life, let alone to enjoy it? But this is the kind of God we have. The one who is perfect came to those who are not. He's over there. We're over here, and he doesn't say, oh, man, if you just try really hard, if you're just a little bit more merciful, if you just pray a little bit more, yeah, yeah, then you get a few more steps. Okay, now, now this week, you pray a little bit more than that, be more merciful, and here's some persecution. Cool, okay, get more, a few more steps. Maybe eventually you'll make it to me. Come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. That is not what God does. That is the opposite of how God calls us to live. That's the opposite of how God calls, uh, lives his own life. What God does in his mercy, he has the singular devotion of love, the purity in his heart, to make peace where we've broken it, to bring us to him. He's the one who prepares a meal for us. We don't prepare the meal for him. He prepares it for us. We get to enjoy it. And what the Sermon on the Mount is about, especially these first 12 verses, is what the good life is and how to enjoy it to the fullest. And this meal, symbolized in this, 
is the good life, is the happy life, is the blessed life. There's no rat race here. This is rest. And there's a rest he gives even when we're persecuted. We might get singled out. We might get ghosted. People might stop talking when we come around. The people we seek to love will not always love us back. They're going to bite. But our reward is bigger than anything that anyone can do to us on earth. We get him. We couldn't make a way to him, but he made a way to us. Jesus trailblazed our path of peace through his cross. And he brings us along this path. He gives us himself, the Holy Spirit, to keep us on that path so we can keep enjoying this good life. Jesus is our rebel leader, destroying that spiritual status quo that wants to run rampant in our hearts. Each of our hearts need to resign itself to his love when we get the chance. And through his death on the cross, he made peace and he gives us the good life. The good life for us, the good life for other people, and to all those who are far off. This bread symbolizes Jesus' body. He died, but he didn't stay dead. And in his resurrection, he gives the good life to all who follow him. And the cup represents Jesus' blood poured out for forgiveness so that we would take hold of the good life completely and fully and be satisfied. Now this, as we're about to sing and as we're about to pray, this is an act of, spirit, of Christian worship. So if you aren't a Christian yet, please don't eat and drink. Um, no one's looking at you or forcing you to do this. We don't want you to do it with a kind of empty heart in the way that Jesus talks against in the Sermon on the Mount. We want it to be an actual um, reflection of, of the inner work he's already done in your heart. But this might be a time for you to take that first step towards the Lord. And if you want to do that, that's fantastic. Talk to somebody, and we can do this all together. That's all lean a little bit more into the good life. There's so much in here. This is only half of it. We talked about the other half last week. There's so much in here to be mined and to be thought of and just kind of not necessarily to find more information about here, but to kind of unearth what's really going on in here. There's so much more to be done there. And Jesus will slowly lead us along the way. He's leading us, our rebel leader, destroying that status quo inside of us. So let's try that today. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that even though we are far off, not really interested in making peace with you, not really interested in this good, great life that you supposedly give. Lord, you are the one who came to us and you drew us to you. Not because we're great, not because we're good, not because you knew we would get it, but because you love us, because you've had a desire for us to know you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We, we, words really fail the level of overwhelming grace and life that, that can come from you. And we've only had half of 12 verses to look at. So Jesus, we thank you that you're good. We pray you continue being good uh, as your Holy Spirit works its way out in our lives. Jesus, I pray for all of us who can move a little bit more closer to you, whatever that looks like in our lives. I pray that you would bring that to mind. You give our hearts a bit of like a burden to, to be able to move just 1% more towards you in the way that we live our lives. And that we would truly know this good life. We would truly be able to see you. We'd truly be able to know what it means to be shown mercy, that we could be called your children, that we could know that the kingdom of heaven is ours. We thank you, Jesus, for this. We pray and sing in your name. Amen. Um, so we will take communion as we sing. Uh, find a good time in one of the songs that um, you feel like you would, uh, that would connect with in order to take. And also in the back, um, we're, this is a thing we're doing every Sunday now. We'll have Mike and Dan and people from the prayer team. Kathleen will be in the back. If you want someone to pray for you, 
go back there. You don't have to say anything. You can say, I just want someone to pray for me. Or you can say what you want them to pray about. Or you can just not say anything at all, and they'll pray for you. Uh, so if you need that, they'll be at the back, um, and they're ready to pray. Let's stand and sing together. We're going to sing in Christ alone, this idea of being pure in heart, single-minded. Let that be Jesus Christ today. Let's stand and sing.